Listen as I read Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Around the world, suffering for Christ is the ordinary Christian experience. Last year, defectors from North Korea gave the church a glimpse of what is happening inside a totalitarian government trying to destroy the church. The Associated Press interviewed North Korean Christians, and, and this is how they describe, the, the Associated Press describes their work. They are showing how underground Christians in North Korea struggle to maintain their faith amid persistent crackdowns. One woman, identified only by her initials, H-Y, because she needed to protect her family still living in North Korea. She said she had the privilege to share the gospel of Jesus and see 10 of her family members and neighbors come to faith in Christ. And then she gathered them for secret worship services before defecting in the South. This, is, this was her, her vision. She says, I want to build the church so that we can sing out as loud as we can. Another believer, Kwok Jung Ai, describes a, a fellow Christian she says, this young Christian woman told her interrogators in the north, I'm a child of God, and I'm not afraid to die. So if you want to kill me, go ahead and kill me. Kwok Jung Ai says that this young woman came back from the interrogation room beaten and bloodied. And then days later, Guards took her away for good. To those of us living in the safety of democratic freedoms where we have the privilege of gathering in public worship, stories of persecution can feel so distant. Yes, we may set aside time to pray for the persecuted church, but we face little threat personally. And so the context of the New Testament seems so distant to us. And perhaps we lose something of the gospel resources that God gives for us to endure in the midst of suffering when we are so distant from suffering for Christ. Because look at, with me at what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea. The language of struggle is language that we saw last week at the end of chapter 1. But, but remember where Paul is when he writes this letter. Remember the context. Paul said back in, in, in chapter 1, verse 24, that he is suffering for Christ because the apostle Paul is imprisoned as a Christian missionary. Because he's preaching the gospel, he is in chains. He is suffering for the sake of the gospel. 
And so he's not merely using the language of struggle for the church the way I might use it on behalf of you. Say that I'm struggling for you in prayer, that I'm visiting with you, that I, that I spend long hours. That's not merely what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea. Speaking of the city down the road in the same valley as Colossae. And so when Paul in verse 5 of our chapter, chapter 2, says, though I am absent from you in body, it's because he's in prison. He's not merely absent because he couldn't get a passport stamped, because he couldn't arrange travel, because he didn't have time to make the journey. He is absent from them for the sake of the gospel. He is suffering for Christ. See, Paul is in prison, but his suffering is for the sake of the church, for the good of the church, for the mission of the church. That's what we saw last week in verse 24, that Paul was suffering for the church. He was laboring in verse 29 of chapter 1, laboring and struggling with all the energy of Christ for the sake of the church. And so when we remember that for Paul, the expectation was, of course, Christians will suffer. When we, who, who expect to have lives of comfort and convenience, he would look at us and say, have you ever heard the gospel? You remember what they did to Jesus. Jesus, who is the king and creator of the universe, humbled himself and suffered in the place of sinners. Of course, suffering, Paul would say, is part of the Christian life. It's part of the mission of the church it's part of the, the reason God has, the way in which God is going to work through the church to make the gospel known to the world. And so, so see how the suffering of Paul, the struggle of Paul for the sake of the gospel, serves the church in Colossae. Look with me now at, at verse 2 of chapter 2, where Paul offers encouragement to the church. He says, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Why does Paul keep struggling even though he's in prison? Why does he diligently pray for them? Why does he write letters to them? Why does he send messengers to them? Well, he says it explicitly, my purpose. Verse 2, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. He wants the church to be strengthened in the hope of the gospel. Why does Paul continue to labor? Why does he not just give up? Because this is the mission God has given to him to make the name of Jesus Christ known. And he knows that this will be for the good of the Colossian believers. They will be encouraged. If Paul is willing to suffer, if the gospel is that precious, then, then of course I'll pursue Christ. Of course I can have hope now in the midst of my own suffering because, because the gospel is precious. And Paul says that he wants them not only to be encouraged, but, but verse 2, to be united in love. We've, we talked in, in previous weeks about how Paul is describing what it is to be united to Christ. That when you put your trust in Christ, you belong to him. You're identified with him. And he's saying, because you are united to Christ, you can be united to one another. And that's actually why in, in verse 5, he can say, though I'm absent with you, I'm not physically there, I'm with you in spirit. Because I'm united to Christ, you're united to Christ, and so if we are serving the same purpose, the same mission, then we're together in this. And he's saying that, that, that suffering, the struggle of the cross, the, the struggle of the church can unite believers together. Because too often a, a gathering of Christians 
could be described merely by the other things we have in common. Yes, we live in the same kinds of neighborhoods. We have the same kind of hobbies. And so we could run into each other at the grocery store or on the golf course. We could, we could, we could connect in other ways. And, and, and if that's all that connects us, then we're really missing the purpose of gathering as a church. Because Paul is saying he wants them to be united in love, in the love of Jesus Christ, which propels them in mission. Because unity isn't found just in being friends with one another. Remember, the, the whole context here of, of Colossians is really an emphasis on evangelism, on making the name of Jesus Christ known. The, the evangel is just good news. It's, the, it's just the, the, the language of, of Jesus died in the place of sinners, and this news has to be shared. And so when we share the gospel, when we are engaged in evangelism, we are doing the work of the church. And that's exactly what we saw back in verse 28 of chapter 1. And so that's still the context of what Paul is writing about. He there was, was telling the church, you are a missionary church. The church has the responsibility to tell others about Jesus. Verse 28 says, we proclaim Christ. Why does the church exist? To proclaim Christ to others, to make the gospel known. And so in unity, when we struggle together moving forward, when we have a, a purpose in mind, the mission of the church, then we can be united to one another. It means even though you and I may not have connected otherwise, we're connected in Christ. Even though our, our interests or skills are, are, are diverse, we have a, a common purpose. So we, we can be united in love. And that's the picture that we see in the church that's being persecuted. H.Y., the North Korean Christian whose name we don't know, she describes her return back home and continuing to tell others about Jesus. She longs for this day when the church can sing full-throated in praise to God, but she describes what it looks like now. When she gathers in worship under the threat of persecution, she says, we sing hymns very quietly. We have to look at each other's lips to stay in time. She says, I end up crying quite often. But don't you see in her is a picture of the way the gospel works. She is fervent in sharing this good news with others, no matter the threat to her life. And she gathers in unity, in love. I mean, imagine if worship was that intimate that you had to be face to face in order to hear each other sing, united in the mission of the church. And yet, too many of us say, you know what, Kevin? I think I'm doing pretty well on my own. I mean, to be honest, I don't really need to be connected to others. If I'm united to Christ, then me and Jesus, we're just fine. We don't, I don't need anything else. And now, at, at times, when we tell you at, at Faith Church, we want you to connect in relationship with others. It, sometimes it sounds almost simplistic that on Sunday mornings we gather in, in Sunday school so that we can study God's Word, we can, we can learn and grow in maturity. We tell you to connect in a community group where you can spend time with a small group of people, applying the good news of Jesus to your lives and then praying for one another. And there are seasons of life or, or health issues which might prevent you from doing that on a regular basis. But for many of us, the only thing that prevents us is just our selfishness, our arrogance, thinking, you know what, I don't really need that. I'm doing just fine, just me. And yet to say such a thing exposes our selfishness because the mission of the church is that we are united together. 
And if it's true that you really are that good at it, that's all the more reason for you to show up at a community group because the rest of us aren't that good at it and we need your help. Because we are meant to be united together in love. United together in proclaiming the gospel. And so Paul, suffering, struggling for the sake of Christ, sees the, the, the purpose of God in, in bringing unity to the church. But, but also, he, he continues to show us that, that he also sees the maturity of the church. Now, there's the, a beautiful thing about the way that the Greek language works is that you can just keep adding clauses on, and you never actually have to put a period at the end of the sentence. You can just, a run-on sentence can go on forever, and, and you don't get marked off for bad grammar. And so we've seen one purpose. Why is Paul struggling? Well, he said in verse 2, my purpose is that the church would be united. There'd, there'd be unity. But then he just, in verse, now in the middle of verse 2, says, so that, he just adds another purpose clause. Why are we striving toward unity? So that, verse 2, the church may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Unity then leads to maturity, the full riches of complete understanding. Paul is giving us the hope of growing in the knowledge of who God is, of who Jesus is, what God has done for us. We gather together in the gospel because of the work of Jesus Christ. He is telling us that you can know the very mind of God, the very purposes of God. Paul uses the language there in verse 2 of mystery, the mystery of God. And remember we talked about this last week, that, that we, the way we ordinarily use the word mystery in English is that like, oh, it's something I didn't know. It's something that's secret. It's something that's hidden. It's something, uh, it, it's a mystery to me. But when Paul uses the word mystery, he's using it the way the Old Testament uses, which is, yes, it used to be something we did not know, but it's now something that has been made known. Like the, the curtains pulled back and the theater performance begins. You didn't know what was behind the, the curtains, but now it's been revealed to us. The mystery, the confusion is gone because it's right in front of us. And what is the mystery of God, the plan of God at work in the world? It's all in Christ, Jesus our Savior. See, Paul wants us to come to a personal understanding of who God is. It's not enough to know some facts about Jesus. It's not enough to know true things about what Jesus did. Yes, you need to know at least that, that God sent his perfect son to die in the place of condemned sinners. And then when we put our trust in Christ, that we find the forgiveness of sins. But you see, it's, it's not merely that you get the blessings of heaven. It's not merely that you are forgiven your sins. You get the full mystery. You get Christ himself. So that we can then, we, we find these, verse 3 then, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, because that's what's in Christ. The good news of, of who God is. And, and one commentator says that verse 3 here is the, the high point of the Christology of this letter. The high point that shows us the greatness of who Christ is which is a bold thing to say in a letter where back in chapter 1, Paul described Jesus Christ as before all things, the creator of all things, in whom all things hold together. So that in, in verse 18, we say that in, uh, that in everything, Christ has the supremacy. And yet Paul, in describing the work of Christ there, is now saying, but that's yours. It belongs 
to you. That Jesus, in in chapter 1, verse 20, is the one who reconciled us to God. Jesus is the one who, who made peace with God through his blood shed on the cross. Because as Colossians 1, 21 and 22 tells us, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You get Christ. And in Christ, chapter 2, verse 3, you get all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. A knowledge of what God is doing in the world, what your purpose in this world is. Uh, You get the treasures of wisdom, which is being able to actually do what is true. To not only cognitively understand it, but to act on it. To be someone who is wise, who understands the, the way in which God would have you live. All of that is given to you in Jesus Christ. And yet some of us, we, we resist. And maybe you're here and you find yourself thinking, I just, I just don't know if it's true. I just don't know if I can believe this. You see what Paul is, is saying? You're, you're never going to just figure it out. It's not as if you can just go off and, and study enough and gain enough knowledge. He's actually saying, no, what does it take to understand Christ? It takes stepping in believing, trusting in Christ. And, and as a follower of Christ, if you've already put your trust in him, then figuring out what's next, like what should I be doing? What, how do I decide? How do I, how do I make this big decision which looms in front of me? You step forward in faith. You act in Christian maturity and you grow in the knowledge of the gospel. And you can do that, remember, not by yourself, but, but in unity with other believers, leaning on them for strength and hope and purpose. Because Paul is offering, reminding us that in Christ we have the full treasures of God. The mystery which was hidden has now been made known. Christ has appeared. And everything you longed for, everything you needed, is in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says that he struggles so that the church would have unity, the church would grow in maturity, but also that the church would have a certainty that this gospel is true. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, I tell you this so that, he's giving us another so that. You know, this is one of those passages which is, which is easy to preach because Paul just keeps saying, so that, and now so that, and now so that. He's saying, I'm telling you all of this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Now, this is the first glimpse we've gotten in reading the letter to the Colossians about false teaching taking place in the church. It becomes a more important theme as the letter continues, but, but there's, there's this idea, and, and Paul doesn't explain it fully to us because those reading this letter, they knew the false teaching. They'd heard it in their own church. But, but this language of mystery and the, the way in which he, he describes the, the glory of Christ through the rest of this letter, it, it, it implies that, that there were some teaching that there's this secret that they had that could be given to everybody else. Well, not everybody else, only those special enough to have this secret. And so if you could have this mystery, well, maybe for a certain price you could buy your way in. Maybe through a certain set of knowledge you could gain your own understanding. Maybe you could have have access to this secret. And Paul is saying, no, 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 the the mystery has been revealed. You want to know what the mystery is? It's, It's made known to everyone everywhere. It's Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, the one who died on the cross shedding his blood for your sin. But Paul understands that that false teaching 
can creep into the church. And so he warns the church, I want you to know that you have everything you need already so that you don't go chasing after something else. You don't go chasing after a a truth or a a falsehood that comes to you by way of a fine-sounding argument. Now, in Paul's other letters, he admits that he's not the most eloquent of preachers. Yes, he's well-trained, he's given insight by God, but, but he's, not, he's not polished as a presenter. And so he knows that if, that if he were able to be there in person, that if we were just measuring on, on the oratorial skill, that, well, maybe these fine-sounding arguers would win. He's also at a disadvantage because he's made clear he's not with them, that he's absent from them. But he's warning them, don't, don't fall prey to these false arguments. The fine-sounding arguments. And, and yet, we today hear many of the same kinds of fine-sounding arguments. Hopefully not from within the church, but, but culturally, we hear all kinds of things. And so, students, I want, you to, I want you to listen, because there will come a time, maybe this has already happened to you in a classroom, but there's likely to come a time for you when, when someone standing at the front of the room who is smarter than you, more eloquent than you, will give you an argument asking you to set God aside. And it will sound maybe initially like a fine-sounding argument. But challenge the conclusions that it will take you to. Ask why the person believes. Get behind what what sounds like a fine-sounding argument to the truth. Because we hear arguments like this. You know, they're There's no purpose in the universe. We're here by a random set of circumstances, by random chance. And when we hear that, and it comes from somebody with with an academic prestige behind their name, we think, oh, I guess that, that makes some sense. We just showed up here. That's what science seems to prove. And it actually, that can sound like a freeing argument when you hear that, that there is no God because, well, wait, if God's not here, then I can kind of do whatever I want, right? Like, I can get away with living however I'd like. And so initially, you may, as a student, find that, that the, this fine-sounding argument is, well, it's nice and shiny because, well, that would give me a lot of freedom. It sounds eloquent because it sounds sophisticated, See, too often as Christians, we're sort of embarrassed by our Christianity. We sort of feel like, well, I'm a Christian, but, but like, I'm not stupid. Like, I mean, listen to me. I mean, I'm not an idiot. I mean, like, it's almost as if we, we spend our time apologizing for the gospel. When a fine-sounding argument comes, we, we cower. But really, think about this. When that fine-sounding argument comes, just ask some questions of, well, then, why does anything matter? How do you know anything at all? Because if the universe is really entirely random, well, then how would you make sense of things that you hold dear, like love and beauty? How can you make sense of that? Or, or worse, worse, the person who often makes this argument that there is no God, that, that life has come about by this random chance, is trying to, to explain to you that, that, yes, if you were a reasonable person, if you were a logical person, if you were an intelligent person, then you would set aside the foolishness of Christianity. 
Except that, where does your reason, where does your intelligence come from? If you and I are just the stuff we're made of, the physical stuff we're made of, then how do you even, without God, make sense of reason? If your argument is, we're reasonable people, therefore we reject foolish things like Christianity, then you should at least be able to make sense of your starting point being a reasonable person. The problem is, if you've come about by random blind chance, then every one of your thought processes has come about by random blind chance. The firing of synapses without purpose or structure And so, you have no reason to trust your own reason. Now, as a Christian, I'm willing to admit, I didn't figure this out because I'm smarter than everybody else. I only know this truth because God told me. I only have confidence that what I think matches with reality Because I believe God made the world. He's a good God. He's made me to be like him in understanding the world. And so my understanding of the world will match up with the world that I actually live in. Because there's a good God who made me and made the world. But if there is no good God, if this is all just random, then you have no reason to believe anything at all. Because anything you think or believe is suspect and untrustworthy. And so sometimes fine-sounding arguments are hollow and empty. Fine-sounding arguments can't withstand the the weight that they, they, they purport to hold. How can we make sense of a world filled with truth and dignity and beauty? And so Paul in, in pushing the church to, to understand with confidence, with certainty, the gospel that's been given to them, then, 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 then pushes them to know Jesus Christ. And in warning them about the false teachings, he says in verse 5, though I'm absent from you, I'm present with you in spirit. And then he delights in the church because he's heard reports about this church. And so at the end of verse 5, he says, and I, I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Now, Paul here is talking about the confidence they have in the gospel. It's not as if he says, oh, you're so orderly. Every meeting you have begins with Robert's rules of order. Your committee structures are clear. I understand how all the voting takes place in your congregation. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is when, when the chaos of a false teacher comes in, you cling on to the, 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 the truth of the gospel message that was given to you. The church is persevering. They are firm in their faith. They're holding on to the message that was given them by Paul and the other apostles. And so, are you firm in your faith? You see what Paul is saying. How would you be firm in your faith, even in the midst of suffering? It's when you see the purpose God has for you. That you have everything you need in Christ. More than that, though, you're you're united with other believers. When you feel like your faith is weak, you gather in worship and you hear them sing. They hold on to you and strengthen and encourage you. Paul is saying, you have everything you need. Because if you put your confidence in yourself, you will be disappointed. If you put your hope in the diplomas you have hanging on your wall, then you will find yourself at the end of life to not know very much at all. 
If you put your hope in your goodness and your religious observance, that this is what will make me right with God, then you will be exposed as someone who is a selfish sinner. Your only hope, Paul says, is that you may know what has been revealed to you, the mystery of God, which is Christ. And the good news is everything you need is in Christ. Every treasure that you need is in Christ. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. Do you need wisdom on how to live your life? It's in Christ. Do you need knowledge of of what is true about the world? It's in Christ. Your hope is in Jesus Christ, the one who shed his blood on the cross for you. Jesus Christ is the treasure given to us. I read a news story last year. It's one of those moments where you just think, oh, no. The, the, uh, a man in Oregon sold his RV, his recreational vehicle. And so he took a cash payment of $23,000 and he put it into a shoebox. But then he left the shoebox sitting at his house and someone else who was better at cleaning up than he was recycled the shoebox. And so in a panic, when he realized that the recycling had already gone out and been picked up from the curb, he called and, and through a series of phone calls, eventually gets connected to where the recycling will end up, the recycling center. At which point the plant manager, Linda Wise, told him, well, we'll take a look. But the truck that picked up your recycling has 22 tons of recycling on it. And every day we receive hundreds of tons of recycling here. Well, now the next day, an employee, Nick Page, he's pulling cardboard off the line when he sees a $20 bill. We realize it's actually it's stacks of $20 bills, and, and he's a smart enough guy to figure this out. So he scoops it up, walks into his bo- boss's office and said, uh, here's the money that guy called about yesterday. Now, when they counted all the money, they were only missing $60. Only three $20 bills had gone missing. Now, you can imagine the, the relief of this man who, who probably in, in panic thought, I should have been more careful with that money, or probably in anger was thinking, you recycled it without looking inside it? You didn't check to see if there was an empty box before you threw it out with the, with the, 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 what that which was to be disposed? No, so in his excitement, then, then the owner of this, this cash then drove four hours the next day to the recycling center. And he, he offered, he wanted to share a, re- a reward with the employees who had, who had turned it in, but, but they said, no, you, you lost something and we gave it back to you. See, a treasure that had been lost was found. I mean, imagine his excitement. You mean, wait, all of it is there? I mean, we're only missing $60? Out of the hundreds of tons of material that has already been through your plant, we found it. I mean, your treasure, Paul is telling us, is of much greater value than a pile of 20s. I mean, you could put zeros at the end of it, and your treasure is still greater. Because what is the treasure you are offered? It's the treasure of all wisdom and all knowledge. It's the treasure of Jesus Christ himself. You have the mystery of God made known, the plan of God revealed to you. You have a message that has to be shared, an excitement about what God has done that needs to be told to others. You have a gospel hope that unites you to others in love. 
you have Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Will you seek Christ? Let me pray for us. Father, I ask that you would you would show us the ways in which we have lived with a selfish arrogance, a confidence in our own, our own wisdom, our own knowledge. Lord, I pray where we have been quick to assume we, we had easy answers, that we would come to you humbly. Father, for those that have listened, that have struggled with, with the claims about Jesus, the claims which you yourself make in your word, Lord, I pray that they would humble themselves. Lord, that they would put their trust in Jesus. Father, that we would, we would stop trusting ourselves and lean wholly upon Jesus, our Savior. Father, I pray that we as a church would be united together in mission and purpose. We'd be united together in love, quick to ask for forgiveness, quick to extend forgiveness. Lord, that we would be those that encourage one another in, their, in the sharing of their gospel faith. Lord, that we would help each other create opportunities for the name of Jesus Christ to be honored and glorified. Lord, that we would be faithful in praying for one another, that we'd be diligent in following up with each other. Lord, that we would show the world what it looks like to be marked by your love, to be changed by your love. Father, we give you praise because of what you have done for us through Jesus, our Savior. Jesus, the true Son of God, your true Son, who died in our place. Lord, we rejoice that, that, that in him our sins are forgiven, that he's been raised from the dead. He now reigns as the King so that he might have all the supremacy in the universe. We come giving praise to Jesus Christ. Amen.